In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor, normally in Brussels, currently in Rome. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London, but this week I'm in Scotland. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor, normally in Dublin and currently in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. This week, the sense of an ending. On the very day the European Parliament finally ratifies the Brexit Future Relationship Treaty, Arlene Foster resigns as leader of the DUP and as First Minister. We'll take a detailed look at the role Brexit played in the political demise of Arlene Foster with RTE's Northern Editor, Vincent Kearney. And we'll be hearing from Sean, who's been travelling the highways and byways of the troubled United Kingdom on the impact of Brexit on the upcoming Scottish and Welsh elections. But first, we're going to play a short sting and we'll be back with Vincent Kearney on precisely what Tony mentioned there at the outset, the role of Brexit in Arlene Foster's demise. Okay, Vincent, how are you? I'm very good. Good, you're taking your new haircut to uh, a venue for hospitality later on, is that right? Indeed I am. I I, I couldn't resist having uh, enjoyed the envy of all my colleagues in Dublin last week when I had the the haircut. Um, I decided to continue further research. I want to stress this this is journalistic research uh, by bringing a table in an outdoor um, bar today. So myself and and two two friends, two brothers, we're we're heading out. We've been Zooming for the past year. Um, So we're going to set the Zoom aside and, and go for a couple of actual real pints today. As you say, show the hair cut off. I did exactly. a bit of research. Right. You're, you're not the only entity in Northern Ireland having a little off the top in recent days. The DUP has decided that it's time to part with its upper level as well. Arlene Foster went. I mean, given that we're talking on the Brexit Republic podcast, how much of a catalyst was Brexit in the DUP leader's departure? A huge catalyst. Absolutely huge. Because if you remember, um, Arlene Foster and the DUP, they had a very strong hand. You know, they had 10 MPs at Westminster. Uh, at one stage, they effectively had the Conservative government of Theresa May over a barrel. And at that point, they could have backed Theresa May's deal, with, which many people would have said would have been a better deal for Northern Ireland, but they didn't. Uh, and then Boris Johnson came into power. You know, he, he called that snap uh, general election wiped out the DUP's negotiating hand, uh, weakened their position, but the DUP still tied themselves to Boris Johnson. Now, many in the party were unhappy about that. And I remember the time, Colin, you know, many people asking members of the DUP, Arlene Foster included, you know, in side conversations, could they really trust the Conservative government? You go back to 1985, you know, Margaret Thatcher, that's his Anglo-Irish agreement. Uh, the Ulster Unionist leader, uh, Sir James Molyneux, he was stunned when Margaret Thatcher signed that agreement behind his back. And there's been a history of Conservative governments uh, letting down unionists. So Arlene Foster, uh, Nigel Dawes and other senior party members were facing discontent, concern within their own ranks. Could they really trust Boris Johnson? And in the end, they couldn't trust Boris Johnson because Boris Johnson told him repeatedly there would be no custom checks, there would be no Irish sea border. When he was asked a question, he repeatedly said, no, 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 move on, move on. He didn't get into detail. In the end, of course, there are customs checks. There are what unionists and lawyers are now calling an Irish sea border. And many within unionist ranks, not just DUP members, but rank and file supporters on the street and lawyers in the streets, they point a the finger of blame towards the DUP leadership as much as they do Boris Johnson. And has there been any divide kind of along urban rural lines in the DUP over the stance they took over that time. I recall a long time ago talking to Barclay Bell from the Ulster Farmers Union and the farmers were at him. They wanted something that was as close to the status quo when Northern Ireland was in the EU for the sake of their exports as possible. Did the DUP hear that? Did they choose to ignore it or did identity politics effectively trump pragmatism in the discussions around Brexit? 
I think we just said about identity politics. I think that did Trump, certainly for the politicians. I remember hearing Ian Pizzi Jr., you know, a rural constituency, North Antrim, the Ballymena area, lots of uh, big farmers, lots of DUP supporters, and he repeatedly took a very hard line stance on Brexit, saying, you know, the harder Brexit, the better. You know, we need to be out of Europe as quickly as possible. When you taught the Ulster Farmers, Ulster farmers Union, as you say, many unionist Protestant farmers, they were quite concerned because, as you said, they wanted the status quo. They did not want too much disruption. They didn't really want a hard Brexit. Uh, so it would appear that certainly some within the DUP did not listen to the grassroots. They, they, they took the, the political route rather than the practical route. And I, th- route, and I think there has been a bit, a bit of a backlash. The backlash we've seen in recent weeks, young kids on the street, you know, petrol bombs. The, the bottom line is they, they don't know what the protocol is. They don't know the ins and outs. They don't know the detail. But what they do know, Colm, is what they've been told by their, their political leadership is that this is creating a border east and west. To them, to their minds, and to the people around them, that means that they could potentially be less British than they were previously. That potentially they could be forced into a, an economic United Ireland, that their British identity could be undermined. And this all comes down to the constitutional question. And as leader of the largest unionist party, the DUP, Arlene Foster's chief job was to maintain and strengthen his position within the United Kingdom. And many of his members and supporters believe that his position within the UK now is weaker than it was six months ago, 12 months ago. Uh, and that's uh, really underlies all the problems he has. Yes, there are other issues that have factored into this, but his concern over the, pl- the pr- practical and now political outworkings of the protocol, this is a really big issue. You know, is Northern Ireland now less a part of the UK than it was, say, 12 months ago? And many unionists and lordists fear that it potentially is. You mentioned there, Vincent, the young kids on the street and what they're hearing from political leaders. But is there a disconnect maybe between the DUP and the kids in the most deprived areas, a feeling maybe that they come knocking on the doors at election times, but the day-to-day political contact for those people is with prominent figures and activists, maybe with a background in loyalist paramilitarism. Is that fair to say? That's very true. That's that's become apparent um, on social media over the past couple of weeks and in some media interviews as well. But, but it's been a recurring theme come over a number of years. And we're going into some of these areas. Um, Sandy Row in Belfast, a very staunchly Lordist area. And you would talk to people there who were connected to Lordist paramilitaries. And they would say, look, you know, constitutionally, uh, we need to support the DUP because we need a strong political party in there to counter Sinn Féin. But practically, they would say, the DUP did nothing for those areas. And a Lordist working class areas have felt they have been left behind by the Good Friday Agreement. And when you get into conversation with them, but while they've been left behind, many of them will say they believe their political leadership has left them behind. And throughout this week, we've heard Lordist voices, community voices, saying the politicians have lost touch with the communities. They haven't done enough to listen to them. There are concerns, and they aren't all concerns about the constitutional question. There are concerns about poverty levels, about educational attainment, about opportunities for, for young people, about facilities within their own areas. And Lordists have felt left behind, and the people, many of them blame other own political leaders. How are the police viewing this as we look into the summer when, you know, most people in Northern Ireland will be vaccinated by July, the marching season? There's every chance that it will take place as it has done in other years with people out on the streets. And now with this added layer of the protocol, how much of a complication could that cause for security in Northern Ireland? It could be a complication. On on the positive side, I feel like at this stage, there are no indications, you know, that Northern Ireland is on the brink of a return to violence. There are no suggestions at this stage that Lordist paramilitary organisations are rearming, that guns are going to be brought onto the streets. Uh, there is concern about what might happen on the streets in, in terms of, of violence that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Now, this thing has gone out of that, and I think, funny enough, that uh, the change at the top of the DUP might keep things calm because Lordists will watch closely. Many of them wanted Arnie Foster out. Uh, there have been graffiti up in some Lordists areas in recent weeks, no Irish sea border, Ulster is British, the Irish sea border must go. But on a couple of occasions, there are also graffiti saying, Foster must go, Arlene Foster out. So so many associated the DUP leadership with the problems. So the fact that the leadership is now changing, um, I think some Lordists will be quite happy with that, so they might hold back to see what happens there. But going forward over the summer, as you say, when people come out on the streets, there's been pent-up frustration, people haven't been out. So they're going to be allowed to mix together 
the pubs are opening, so f- drink will be more freely available. Uh, the weather is getting better. We're coming into traditional marching season. There is, for the police, a bit of a perfect storm gathering, and that will cause them concern. And another concern come going forward is how does the DUP play what happens next? Is there an early election? Um, if so, then that ups the political stakes. Even if there isn't one, the election is next May. The parties here are already effectively in election mode. Do the DUP turn this election campaign into a de facto re- referendum on the protocol? Then what happens is we see orange order parades that take place every year turning into anti-protocol parades. That again increases the, the, the political temperature, increases the rhetoric. So the police will certainly be watching with some concern that the potential for street violence could increase but thankfully at this stage street violence as bad as it is um, the, the police don't sense that there's, a, there's an appetite for going any further to raise the, the level of violence to the stage where guns are back in the streets. And what would the mechanics of an early election be Vincent you know if the, the DUP were to withdraw from Stormont and collapse the institutions how would an election follow that what's the I suppose the, the process of the protocol around that? Well, they're, they're frantic head-scratching going on within the Northern Ireland office at the moment because as it stands, legislation at the moment is the DUP uh, must nominate a replacement um, First Minister within seven days of Arlene Foster stepping down. If they don't, then the executive falls. If they do, uh, and Sinn Féin refuse to go into government with that new First Minister, for example, say the new First Minister made it clear from the outset that they were not going to sign up to the long-promised Irish Language Act, um, then the executive, again, would collapse within a week. There is legislation proposed under the New Deal, New Approach legislation or, uh, agreement last year that would expand that time frame to six months, perhaps six to nine months. Now, that legislation has not been put on the books yet, but so there, there are some suggestions that Northern Ireland Secretary of State Brandon Lewis is engaged in fairly frantic discussions to see if legislation could be brought forward as soon as possible. So if the executive was to collapse, rather than him having to call an election within seven days, they might be able to give the parties six and possibly even up to nine months breathing space before there's an election. And that would take the sting out of the situation and let the political temperature get dialed back a little. Right. But when Stormont was in abeyance for around three years, it was seen possibly that there wasn't an effective voice to articulate the concerns of business and people in Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland lost out perhaps by not being heard as Brexit and the withdrawal agreement was being negotiated. Is there any sense that people would fear that happening again, that people's concerns wouldn't be articulated and the vacuum left by the absence of Stormont in the current climate might lead to just further trouble and instability? Absolutely, there, there, there will be a worry, especially coming out now, you know, a year of pandemic lockdown, a year when businesses are trying to get back on their feet. The last thing they want is a political vacuum. They need decision making, they need help, they need money coming through as quickly as possible. So they want the devolved administration functioning as well as possible. They don't want it going into some kind of um, suspension for a period of time because that will delay money getting to them, but also delay decisions being made. Uh, and that for them will, will be the, a disaster. But also, call, it's High stakes here for the, for the DUP as well, because if the DUP reaches a situation where the assembly is down for a period of time, and some decisions have to come from Westminster, um, you know, Westminster is imposing abortion law that the DUP doesn't want. Um, Westminster has has moved in a number of ways in recent weeks that has annoyed the DUP. The protocol being the prime example. So the DUP, if they leave. North Ireland without a functioning assembly, that means there could effectively at some point be more direct rule from Westminster. So therefore they're putting their trust once again in the same government that delivered a protocol that they didn't want. So it's a very, very risky uh, strategy and they're walking a real political tightrope. Finally, Vincent, then what kind of a DUP might emerge from this? Who are the runners and riders and what would the individuals who might head up the DUP say about the newly minted DUP? Well, it looks like this is one declared uh, runner for the the position of DUP leader. Edwin Poots. Now there there are others being mentioned. Geoffrey Donaldson, the MP, and Gavin Robinson, MP. Uh, Geoffrey Donaldson is viewed as the most likely uh, to throw his hat in the ring. Now Geoffrey Donaldson and Edwin Poots shared an office for many years in Lagan Valley. Uh, so will they go against each other, or will there be some kind of a compromise deal? The compromise potentially being talked about is 
Edmund Poots as First Minister in Northern Ireland and Geoffrey Donaldson leading the party as MP from Westminster. But in terms of what kind of DUP emerges, this is the huge problem for the DUP. They're getting rid of Arlene Foster, so we know what they're against, but no one can quite say what they're for. I was speaking to someone last week, someone was senior in the DUP, cleared, are very close to people who make their, their big decisions. They said the problem for the DUP is that they're fractured themselves within the party. Internal polling over the years of their supporters has shown there is very, very strong support for a harder line with Sinn Féin and a harder line with the Irish government, perhaps putting back from north-south arrangements because many within the DUP believe they're too close. But on the other extreme, there is many of their young voters and aspiring voters are less socially conservative than the elected members. So many of the younger DUP members and aspiring DUP members want the party to be more socially liberal. So it's very difficult to go to the right on the political front, but to go to the left on the social issues. And the party is facing a real dilemma because there is a concern among some of their strategists that if they move to the hardline elements and they take the harder line with, with Sinn Féin, they take the harder line with the Irish government and they become more socially conservative, that will force away many of their voters towards the Centre Ground Alliance Party or even the Ulster Unionist Party, the party that once used to rule Northern Ireland for, for decades and has now been not obliterated but has been severely weakened by the DUP over the years. So there is a real concern about what kind of DUP emerges. Truth be told, come at this stage, I really don't think that those in leadership position the DUP themselves know what direction they're going to take. I think they come to the view that the one thing they could agree on was that they wanted rid of Arlene Foster. What they can't yet agree on is where they go next. That's great, Vincent. Thanks a million. Okay, Tony, we heard from Vincent Kearney there going through the ructions Brexit caused in Arlene Foster's career and the ongoing ructions that the Northern Ireland Protocol is causing in Northern Ireland's politics as well. This week, though, as you said at the outset, we had the sense of an ending. The European Parliament managed to kick the Brexit dust from its feet. Yeah, that's right, Colm. So finally, the European Parliament gave its consent to the trade and cooperation agreement, the future relationship between the EU and UK. Uh, during a vote on Tuesday, the result only came out on Wednesday morning. But this is one of the final pieces in the jigsaw of ratifying the treaty itself. Of course, the treaty was concluded on Christmas Eve, as we all remember. That left no time at all for the European Parliament to scrutinise it, uh, as is its uh, right and duty. Uh, And so the treaty only came into effect provisionally on the 1st of January. Initially, the Parliament was due to ratify it in late February, but... It just was taking so long to run the treaty through various uh, European Parliament committees and also getting it translated into 23 languages and into proper uh, proper legal translations. So the EU asked the UK, could they extend the provisional application once more to the end of April? Uh, And so finally this week that happened, but uh, not without a little bit of a hiccup along the way, because of course, the UK unilaterally took some steps on the Northern Ireland Protocol at the beginning of March and that annoyed MEPs no end. So the Conference of Presidents, which comprises the leaders of the main political groups in the European Parliament, and they're the ones who decide what goes on the agenda of the plenary sessions, they held off on making a decision on when to ratify the treaty uh, to I suppose, register their annoyance at at what the UK had done. But eventually, with some uh, qualifying reservations here and there, the Conference of Presidents last week decided, okay, we can put this to a vote. And of course, the vote was overwhelming. 660 MEPs in favour, 32 abstentions and five against. And the vote was accompanied by some speechifying from Michelle Barnier, uh, who interestingly said that actually Brexit was a failure of the European Union, the fact that a, a country wanted to leave and politicians and the institutions across Europe had to take account of that and try and look at what went wrong. Um, and then Ursula von der Leyen made some remarks as well, the the, council, the commission president, 
Uh, and the most salient remarks she made was that the treaty gives the EU some teeth to, to take retaliatory action if the UK does not abide by the terms of the withdrawal agreement. And although she didn't spell it out, she was, of course, talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol and the fact that the UK still has to implement the protocol properly. And she said the EU would, would have no hesitation in using the uh, the measures that it can use under the trade and cooperation agreement. In other words, if the UK doesn't properly implement the protocol, then the EU could end up putting tariffs on UK goods coming into the EU. Uh, she said we didn't want to use them, but that tool was there. But apart from that, there was some sentiment around the idea that this ratification was something of a reset. They could build on this moment to try and restore the the partnership to some kind of harmony and uh, constructive operation over time. I mean, there are uh, a lot of things that have to happen now. There, there is the whole Joint Partnership Council made up of 23 committees that will manage the implementation of this free trade agreement over time. And that's a huge operation which has to get to get started in the coming weeks. Um, but there was a bit of a sentiment that, OK, you know, it's time to be to look to the future. Both uh, the EU and UK are huge economies. They have a lot to uh, work together on a lot they share in common and you know let's get on with things um, right. so so that was the overall sentiment uh, during the vote last week right and unless you know the the European Union and indeed the UK government undergo some form of shall we call it radical conversion therapy the Northern Ireland protocol is there to stay yeah I mean I think I think that's clear and the UK no, no matter what criticisms are made by Ursula von der Leyen and anybody else, the UK is actually putting the necessary pieces in place in Northern Ireland. They are spending millions of pounds in building the infrastructure required in providing the support to traders, the trader support scheme, which is costing a lot of money. Um, various digital assistance programs that are going to be put in place as well. So, you know, as one uh, Stormont official said to me, you know, this this could be mistaken for sincerity uh, on, on the part of the UK in implementing the protocol. And that's, you know, th right. this is... But business be, groups are pretty impressed uh, with the know, level of engagement, uh, aren't they, in Northern Ireland? I mean, they, they it's unprecedented levels of engagement with them in terms of making this work. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's right. And of course, the, the, we are now going to watch uh, a DUP leadership contest unfold where the part, the person that's going to win that contest will, you know, by definition, have to strike a hard line on the protocol. You know, if we assume that Arlene Foster lost her position because of the existence of the protocol. You know, the, the assumption in Dublin and in Brussels is that the new leader of the DUP is, is going to be more hardline in the protocol. Yet the UK government is day by day engaging with the European Commission, working at a technical level to make the protocol happen. So as you say, it, it's not going to go away, but it's just going to be a much more politically fraught thing to manage. When you say a politically fraught thing to manage, how will it be managed? Well, I think the, the way that the European Commission and the British government prefer to manage the protocol is through dull and plodding technical talks. Uh, and those talks are continuing. They have isolated 27 issues that are problematic in the protocol. Simon Coveney during the week when he addressed the European Affairs Committee uh, in, in the Oireachtas said that most of those 27 issues could be resolved. There are four or five issues which are going to need more of a political heave and they revolve around, once again, the question of food safety and animal welfare, the SPS regime on goods coming into Northern Ireland from Great Britain. Uh, again, I think we mentioned these last week, VAT on secondhand cars, tariffs on steel coming into Northern Ireland and various other issues. Now, I'm, I'm told that this week there has been a bit of progress on, on the steel issue. I think we could probably see an agreement there quite soon. They've set up what's called an agri-food forum. So that would involve officials from DG Sante, which is the European Food Safety and, and Animal Health Division, 
and uh, DEFRA, the UK uh, Department of Agriculture, uh, and officials from the Cabinet Office in London to, you know, again, focus all their energies on SPS and on food. Now, we've talked about this many times. How do you deal with huge consignments of GB food that is just being delivered you know, daily to fill the supermarket shelves in Northern Ireland. If if that food is made up of animal products or meat, uh, dairy, eggs, and so on, technically, if they're coming from a third country, which they are, they normally need uh, export health certificates. They need to be signed off by a vet. Uh, we've talked about this many times. That's the big issue that they're right. trying to uh, sandpaper down. In the words of Boris Johnson, that's the biggest barnacle that they have to knock off. And this agri-food forum, which has been set up, is kind of another layer of technical work. You, you have that, then you've got the specialised committee, uh, which is also a technical committee. Then you have the joint committee, which basically makes the political decisions. So I suppose that the, the way to take the politics and the sting out of it is just to get the issues into these turgid dull, uh, endless committee discussions, and then both sides try to get some kind of agreement that they can live with. Um, again, we we are going to be hearing more about an SPS agreement between the EU and UK, whether there can be some kind of veterinary agreement. Both sides are still kind of not out of their fixed positions on that. The EU saying more or less that there would have to be dynamic alignment with EU food safety rules, the UK saying, no way are we signing up to that. We we just want an equivalence um, uh, regime where you kind of recognise our standards as being as good as yours. Um, I mean, I think th- this is all still undercooked at a political level, but I think we, we could get into a situation where they do start to seriously look at some kind of agreement, and it mightn't be perfect uh, it mightn't be one or the other. Uh, they may they may find something uh, in between. Right. Do they have the luxury of time, though? I mean, we touched on the security situation with Vincent and while he was saying, you know, their police aren't fearing, the guns coming out, the pubs will be back open, people will be vaccinated to the point where crowds can assemble on the street, people will still be feeling the discontent, there'll be all the rhetoric of a renewed... DUP, possibly, probably even more hardline DUP with that rhetoric filtering down into various neighbourhoods around Northern Ireland where there has been trouble before. Is there time for a turgid technical committee to slowly, slow bicycle race these regulations over the line or is there any sense on the European side that there is actually a limited amount of time in order to bed down some sense of legitimacy with the protocol? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very good question, Colm. I mean, there isn't uh, the kind of deadline that we've had in the past few years that have really characterised the, the Brexit process. I mean, going back to 2017, the joint report uh, that created the, the forerunner to the protocol, you know, that had to be done by the end of 2017. Um, then you had various other deadlines, Article 50 deadlines. Then you had the... The, the whole deadline that's to get the protocol agreed by the end of last year. And yeah, they, they did reach agreement in the very last throws of, of, of those time periods. This year, it's, it is kind of different because the free trade agreement is now ratified. There, there's no other major uh, leverage that either side can exert on the other from a, from a timing perspective. And it I'm pretty sure the EU would not want to be strong-armed into rushing some agreement just to get it out there before the marching season. Um, that being said, by June, uh, the, that's when the the first official grace period ends for the, the whole sausage-chilled uh, meats issue. And then in October, we have the unofficial grace period coming to an end. That's the one that the UK set up unilaterally around the export health certificates. So, you know, there are, it, it, obviously the process can't go on forever, but I would be surprised if both sides were trying to rush some kind of deal out before the marching season or to be seen to be, you know, being kind of driven to getting a deal by people marching up and down and, and threatening violence. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's it'll be careful management, I think, on, on London and Brussels' part uh, to keep that process as innocuous and technical as possible while 
the, the politics is played out elsewhere. Right. Our listeners are in for some exciting podcasts in the weeks ahead as we unpick <laughs> the turgid technicalities of the various committees as they work through all of this. Right. Anything else on the Brexit radar then? Well, well, I suppose we should just talk a little bit about Arlene Foster's time in Brussels and, you know, where, where she fit in uh, to the whole process of the protocol. I mean, I suppose she had one massive theatrical piece of impact that was back in she spoiled Theresa May's lunch didn't she she spoiled Theresa May's lunch so if you'll recall the UK had to (laughs) reach an agreement with the European Commission on the Irish question before the Brexit withdrawal negotiations could move into the next phase which was going to talk more about the future relationship um, so this was again one of those horrible deadlines that's caused all sorts of gnashing of teeth. But in the end, leading up to early December, she was going to have lunch with uh, Theresa May was going to have lunch with Jean Claude Juncker, the Commission President in Brussels, and both teams of officials were working flat out with Irish government officials in the mix there as well, trying to figure out how to avoid a hard border. And that was when they they eventually agreed. The backstop, which was, if you recall, option C or the third option. So, uh, you know, either there would be no hard border because there would be a very close trade relationship or there were going to be alternative arrangements, technology, etc., etc. Or if neither of those two worked, then option three was Northern Ireland being aligned with the rules of the single market and the customs union. And uh, you'll recall that RT News broke that story on the Monday morning, the 4th of December, that that was in the document. Um, and when, when the DUP, who were being briefed on the document in Downing Street, saw the RT report, they uh, I don't think they were prepared for <laughs> the reality of what it meant. <laughs> or certainly that their British handlers weren't. You know, they they were not being as blunt, perhaps, as as the, those initial reports uh, suggested. And that's when Arlene Foster walked out of Stormont and said, there's no way that unionists could accept this. And was Theresa, Theresa May, May was in, in the Brussels of at the time? With Jean-Claude Luncker when she was in Brussels. She'd yeah. flown into Brussels to have the lunch to, 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 to sort so, of tie so the, the knot. So the napkin was like under her chin at this the, point. The napkin was under the chin. The fork was kind of poised midway between you know plate and lips and the, the, when the ping, phone rang right and one of her aides said yeah i think <laughs> i think it's, it's a call coming in from belfast prime minister and that was when arlene foster said that she would not support this and of course theresa may relied on the 10 votes of the dup for her survival so right the uh the deal fell apart but of course it was stitched up back together again in short order just in a matter of days and that's when they inserted I think it was paragraph 49 of the joint report, which talked about unfettered access for Northern Ireland goods going going into the UK. So that seemed to win the DUP over. But of course, you know, it's it's been a terribly wretched and unhappy period for Arlene Foster in between. Um, and of course, you know, all of the MLAs and MPs who turned against her this week were the ones who cheered Boris Johnson to the rafters when he appeared in the DUP party conference in 2018 as, you know, his, uh, you know, as one critic put it, as a battering ram, uh, using the DUP as a battering ram against Theresa May and, and her backstop uh, plan. Um, but then the Boris Johnson, the saviour, turned out to be Boris Johnson, the... The, the the treacherous um, mendacious uh, person who eventually threw the DUP under a bus and agreed to the kind of border down the Irish Sea that Theresa May said no British Prime Minister would ever accept. So, right. you know, it, it has been a long and unhappy period for Arlene Foster, and you know she didn't come to Brussels very often. I think just once or twice, but. Because the Irish government had so thoroughly outsourced its analysis of the of Brexit and the danger to a hard to of, of a hard border in Ireland uh, to the European Commission, and because the EU had so readily accepted the Irish position and defended it, then it was always impossible for Arlene Foster to get any traction in Brussels to articulate the unionist case, and again. You know, the assembly and the executive had collapsed for most of that period. All of the handling 
of the Northern Ireland issue was being done by the Cabinet Office in London and by the, the UK representation in Brussels. So, you know, it was a lonely and ultimately frustrating journey for Arlene Foster in trying to have any influence over the protocol. That lunch that she wrecked was mm. probably her the, the high point of her influence, but it didn't really make that much difference in the end. Right. There's actually, there's a, there's a growing collection of unpleasant lunches that Theresa May had. There was the awkward one we heard about with Rory Montgomery last week with Enda Kenny. And then there was the one that she spoiled. I'm sure there's a recipe book uh, that we can produce. Theresa May's uh, awkward uh, lunches. Uh, awkward lunch dishes, yeah. <laughs> you, need, so, you need to uh, have watch, a phone on the hook space. during that, that particular <laughs> recipe anyway. All right. Thanks, Tony. All right, thanks, Colin. Next up, it's Sean Whelan, our London editor, this time coming from a rainy underpass in Dundee. Sean, I have to insist you tell the listeners where you are. I am in Dundee, sheltering from the rain because it's uh, blowing in uh, from the sea at the moment. So it's a bit chilly, it's a bit rainy. Uh, but it's other than that, it's a, it's a wonderful city uh, that we're in. We're exploring it. We're up obviously covering the uh, election that's taking place next Thursday. You've got these uh, regional uh, parliamentary elections in Scotland and in Wales. Bunch of elections going on uh, in local authorities in England. Parliamentary by-election as well. That'll be very important uh, to watch. Also some of the big city mayors are getting elected, notably in London. But the big one is the Scottish election uh, because up here, the Scottish National Party trying to win uh, a majority, an overall majority, to push once again for their claim to have another referendum on independence from the United Kingdom. Right. It sounds like it's raining, Sean. Uh, it sounds like it's raining because it is raining, Colm. Uh, we're out on the streets, uh, obviously, with these covid times. You can't just duck into places. There's nowhere for us to hide. We've so driven up here from uh, Glasgow today. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind you're of broadcasting half from covered, an underpass. Uh, broadcasting from basically an underpass that connects us from one street into City Square, uh, which is uh, fenced off or partially fenced off for a COVID vaccination centre. Then beside it, you've got uh, open air pizza restaurants. But the great thing about being up here in Scotland is you can actually eat indoors in a restaurant, something uh, we can't do down in London. Um, you have to eat out on the street down there, uh, but you still have to have your pints out on the street. Uh, but a, it's not such a hardship after months of being pintless, um, right. uh, you know, slipping out after you've had your meal indoors. Uh, but then again, the weather is pretty cold at the moment, unseasonably cold, and uh, that doesn't really uh, encourage you to hang about having those uh, said pints out on the streets. But nevertheless, uh, things are, have opened up quite a lot here. Uh, and in fact, I would say probably a bit more than they have down south in England. Right. Before we, before we feel too sorry for you. Well, before we get to where you are now in an underpass in Dundee reporting on the Scottish elections, more of which we'll see from you next week on RT News in primetime, uh, you were in Wales, in Barry specifically, and the constitutional issue, a more independent Wales was on the election agenda in a way it hadn't been before. Why? Well, two things. One is our old friend Brexit, the, the, the gift that keeps on giving, certainly to this podcast. Uh, and the other one has been uh, COVID, nobody's friend. But the combination of the two things has indeed uh, put the constitutional issue a lot higher up the agenda in Wales than it has been uh, traditionally. Uh, okay. And traditionally, it hasn't been high up at all. Uh, they've been, uh, they barely squeaked uh, a majority to get a devolved parliament into Wales when they balloted on it back in the 1990s. Since then, the turnouts have been pretty low in Welsh politics. Uh, not much of a push until recent years for any kind of uh, constitutional change in the country. But that is definitely changing. Uh, one chap that we spoke to, uh, pretty interesting take on things, uh, a guy called Mark Hooper, uh, from an organisation called Yes Cymru. Uh, we've heard of Plaid Cymru, probably, the Welsh Nationalist Party. Uh, but this is a, a movement called Yes Cymru. It's cross-party. And this is the thing where they are now picking up uh, interest and votes and putting this issue of independence much further up uh, the agenda uh, because they are appealing to people beyond the traditional nationalist uh, base. And what is helping them uh, is the fact that during this pandemic, the Welsh First Minister has been on with almost daily television briefings, 
explaining to people what's happening. They've seen that the uh, devolved powers mean that Wales, and indeed in Scotland, they run things differently to the way things are run in England. And they've done a pretty good job uh, in the Welsh government. It's a Labour Party government, not the Conservatives like you have in Westminster. And people are, are sitting up and taking notice and thinking, well, you know what, if we run our own affairs uh, our way for our people, we can do a pretty good job. And uh, that's put the issue uh, more onto the agenda. Right. Brexit, uh, of course, has also put things onto the agenda because of the economic problems that that is causing. Uh, they've had that notable drop in trade with Ireland, which is their fourth biggest trading partner. Uh, you've seen in the port areas the collapse, really, of traffic uh, across the Irish Sea. Uh, and that economic impact, combined with the economic impact of COVID and the political uh, visibility uh, of the Welsh administration that has hitherto been fairly hidden from the daily discourse of many people in Wales, is now starting to move uh, the constitutional issue and issues of constitutional reform much further up the agenda. Be that uh, federalist ideas uh, and staying within the UK or pushing for full independence, the issue of constitutional change is now on the agenda in Wales in ways that it hasn't been in the past. Right. I suppose in far more of a slow-burning way than where you are at the moment. Um, I'm sure the Labour Party in Scotland might look enviously at how the Labour Party is doing in Wales. But you were, as we record this on Friday, we were looking at the package that went out on the news. The Labour Party hoping to climb back and use COVID, that other great catalyst that's going on at the moment, as a cautionary tale of don't vote for independence, it will end up being a double whammy and endanger the economy of Scotland. That's their pitch, is it? Yeah, I mean, earlier in the week we were in the uh, constituency of Dumbarton, uh, and that's the most marginal constituency in Scotland. There was 109 votes between the Labour Party, who uh, have that seat and have been holding it since 1999 when they had these first parliamentary elections, same candidate still there, uh, after 20 odd years, uh, but she just was 109 votes ahead of the Scottish National Party. So even though there's seven candidates on the ballot paper there, it's all boiling down to a straightforward race between the SNP and Labour. It's the number one target for the SNP. They need to pick up six more seats in the Scottish Parliament uh, in order to get an overall majority. Uh, and that's hard to do in the Scottish uh, electoral system because it's a split between constituencies and the party list system. And crudely put, the better you do in the constituencies, the worse you do on the national list in order to give smaller parties representation in the parliament. So even though the SNP are going to smash it in the constituencies uh, and will be the biggest party, no doubt about that, the uh, hybrid nature of uh, the electoral system means that it's going to be tricky for them to get a majority. The system really is set up not to give any one party uh, an overall majority to try and force coalitions and uh, sharing of power across parties, uh, as will be the case in, in most other European or proportional representation systems. But the SNP did get an overall majority back in 2011, uh, and that led to a, an independence referendum uh, in 2014. Uh, they think with that precedent in place, if they get uh, a, an overall majority this time, they can go back to Boris Johnson and say, the precedent is there, we want a referendum, uh, you need to authorise us to hold one. Okay. Uh, because they've said they'll only do it in a legal mechanism, but it will lead to more conflict with Westminster. But the polls at the moment are showing that they might come up about two seats short. So the political heat is turning up here in the last week of campaigning uh, for this election, but it's a big, big issue. Uh, and of course, Brexit is one issue, COVID is another issue. Uh, but Jackie Bailey, the uh, sitting MSP uh, over in Dumbarton, she's saying, yes, Brexit has been terrible for the economy in Scotland, terrible for the country. But she said uh, independence from uh, the UK would be 10 times worse. So she is appealing to people, look, we're coming out of a, a pandemic. The economy has been wrecked by that. It's been wrecked by Brexit. We just need to put things back together. Now is not the time for a referendum and the upheavals that constitutional change uh, would probably lead to. And that is the trump card being played by both Labour and the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats uh, to argue against 
uh, the case of the Scottish National is Party. It, is it as uh, much of a... of course, putting exactly the opposite case. Is it as much of a trump card this time round? Because we've seen the role identity politics could play in the Brexit referendum. We've seen the way the economic arguments could be dismissed as project fear. And it would seem that the Scottish National Party could logically make the argument against the Conservatives that all of the arguments they made in order to control their own destiny, their laws and borders, etc., to separate from the European Union are equally applicable to Scotland. Well, that's exactly the case, Colm, and a lot of the arguments that we did here five years ago in that Brexit referendum are coming back now to bite against the Tories and the crucial one, the one that, you know, really carried the day, I think, uh, and resonated uh, across the UK, but in England in particular. The democracy argument uh, is now in play here in Scotland because they're saying no matter what way we vote in our elections here, uh, this used to be a traditionally Labour stronghold. Uh, it's now uh, absolutely a stronghold of the SNP. It's definitely not uh, a stronghold of the Conservative Party at all. Uh, but they're saying we keep ending up with Tory governments in Westminster imposing Tory policies on Scotland even though we vote against them and a prime example of that was Brexit itself where they voted very strongly to stay in the European Union here in Scotland and yet they had Brexit uh, foisted on them as they would see it because you have a majority in England who are backing the Conservative Party and this is something that candidates of the SNP are, are uh, an argument they've been making for years now. Um, this is just yet another example of how the interests of the English are trumping the interests of the Scots and the constitutional arrangement that exists right now isn't suiting Scotland. That right. is the argument of the SNP and it is of course resonating with the people and about half the country are buying that argument and half the country are not buying that argument and that's why things are on a knife edge here and if they can get those additional seats they believe they will have the uh, moral authority to argue for another referendum. Although, of course, Boris Johnson, who won the referendum for Brexit, is arguing there should be no referendum at all. Interestingly, the issue of a hard border between Scotland and England was being addressed today by Nicola Sturgeon, who said in the course of negotiations, they would have to look at a way to achieve no friction between England and Scotland were an independent Scotland to re-enter the European Union. Of course, the test ground for that is going to be how the Northern Ireland Protocol is working now. So not only is Brexit back in the agenda, but Northern Ireland, again, is central to the kind of arguments that are going to be made. Exactly, and you're hearing from the Conservatives, and the, particularly the Conservatives uh, in England, that uh, the border issue, the, they will be putting up a hard border between England and Scotland, and England is the biggest trade partner uh, for the Scottish economy. About 60% of their uh, sales are going uh, into England and Wales and Northern Ireland, but principally England, of course, uh, 40% to the rest of the world. So they absolutely do depend on that English market. Uh, so anything that's going to introduce frictions there, uh, is going to be bad for business and the economy here. And that argument is playing very, very strongly. And Nicola Sturgeon's arguments that, well, we can be in the EU and we can have friction-free trade with the United Kingdom, the residual rump, UK or England, as most people would simply call it at that point, uh, they ring hollow. They really do. It, it sounds like the type of arguments we were hearing from Theresa May, from Boris Johnson, from all the Brexiters over the past few years. Yes, you can leave the European Union and still have friction-free trade with the European Union uh, and in particular that Northern Ireland border uh, there will be uh, unfettered access in both directions no checks no paperwork etc uh, it isn't working out that way with Northern Ireland it absolutely is not working out that way uh, with exports to mainland Europe and Republic of Ireland and why would Scotland be any different so they probably would have to have a hard border they can negotiate whatever uh, ameliorations they can uh, get away with but ultimately an EU border is an EU border and it would be a pretty firm one. It wouldn't be the first hard border of course uh, that we've uh, seen between England and Scotland. The Italians put one up about 2,000 years ago and uh, we filmed on the way up at the remains of Hadrian's Wall. It's still there folks, plenty of checkpoints, plenty of gates right. because it was a, a border control. Trade was flowing in and uh, across through that wall but it was very much controlled 
by the Roman Empire. Sean, you mentioned then finally the, the hospitality industry in Scotland. What about the people who supply the hospitality industry? You've been, for purely research purposes, like our colleague Vincent Kearney, been going out to sample what's on offer at source. Well, I did. I, I, in the interests of, of journalism, I uh, went to a bar on Monday night and had, and I hand on heart honest here my first draft beer of this year 2021 uh, it was up in uh, Loch Lomond and I had a, a pint of the local brew uh, Loch Lomond IPA and it was nectar it was wonderful stuff and we went to the brewery the next day and uh, did a bit of filming there talked to uh, the boss of the, the company and she was saying uh, that they had a nice export trade to Italy and to Belgium, tough market for beer sellers to crack into there in Belgium. Um, but they haven't sold anything to the EU since the start of the year because of all the bureaucracy that and red tape that's involved. Uh, it's become uh, just supremely difficult for a small company like them to, to do all of that. They're hoping they might be able to pick it up over the next few months, but it's a really, really big effort for them to do that. But then there was the unexpected problems that they've encountered. One is getting tin cans for their put their beer into uh, apparently they've been bought up by large soft drinks uh, manufacturers and suppliers and distributors so it's really hard for uh, brewers to get hold of tin cans apparently that's bad news for all of us uh, i guess the other one is cardboard never thought about this one before but i was watching them putting these tin cans onto pallets and they put a layer of cardboard between them and she was saying it's really hard to get cardboard these days because the cardboard recycling apparently goes to uh, mainland Europe from the UK uh, and it used to be a 10-day turnaround before they would get cardboard from the suppliers in mainland Europe. Now she's looking at eight weeks and some of the loads that they've been shipping out, they've barely had the cardboard back in time to make those loads. So this has become one of the most difficult features of life as a small independent brewer is just getting cardboard to help package up your cans of beer to send them out to your regular customers in Scotland or England or Northern Ireland. Brexit well, and cardboard shortages, who'd have thought that one? Yeah, well, Sean, I suppose it would be only fair of me to let you back and maybe provide a bit of stimulus to that particular industry and step in out of the rain as you look forward uh, to the weekend ahead. We'll do our best with it. All right, that's it. Uh, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungoin, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. And from me, Sean Whelan, RTE's Correspondent in London, this week and next week in Scotland for the elections. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor, normally in Brussels, but currently in Rome. Thanks for listening.